right, Anna, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm really excited to talk about the Saturn V today. Yeah, me too. Anna chose this topic. She's very, very passionate about the Saturn V. I do. I really like the Saturn V. I just think it's a cool rocket. So we're going to dive into this more. The Saturn V is a NASA rocket, and it is actually what brought the Apollo astronauts to the moon. It's a really neat rocket. I have the Lego set that came out, I'm going to say, two years ago. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I think you could still buy it at its height of popularity when it was first released. I think it was two years ago. Oh, yeah. I remember walking around the office and seeing the models on some of the other engineers' desks. That was really cool. What's also really cool is the Lego set itself has 1,969 pieces, and it kind of parallels the fact that the first people on the moon, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, landed on the moon in 1969. Oh, that's super cool. I love that they did that. Yeah, it's really fun. It's a cool Lego set. I have it standing next to my TV. How long did it take you to build it? So I forced myself to like do it in small chunks because I very easily could have just done the whole thing in like a Saturday or something. Uh-huh. But I wanted to kind of draw out the fun. So <laughs> I guess that's what being an adult is, moderating <laughs> your fun. Um, I did it in about a week. That's, I think it was faster okay, than I Okay, that's it would pretty be. impressive. I was expecting not, you to though. say like Some people, a month. You can watch like YouTube videos of people who did it in one day. Oh my gosh. But that I bet that's all they did though. Yeah, it's it's actually not too bad because it's circular. So a lot of it's really repetitive. Ah. Um, it was really fun though. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then we talked about this last time, but I actually made a cross stitch of the Saturn Five. Yes. I, I was just trying to bring that up. You did. <laughs> I can post a picture of mine on our Instagram. Yes. Mine's still in progress. I basically I thought Anna's idea of doing the cross stitch of the Saturn Five was super cool and I copied her, but I'm still working through mine. <laughs> yeah, I hurt my foot uh, a few weeks ago running. I'm fine now, but I couldn't do a lot for a weekend, so that's what I spent the weekend doing. It's such a nice cathartic activity. It is. It's also really fun to do it when you watch TV. Oh, yeah. For sure. You can find really cool patterns on Etsy. So I found some cool space patterns that I'm going to do next, I think. Like, I found one that's a brain, but half the brain is a regular brain, and the other half of the brain is like a galaxy brain. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see that one. And... It's actually a pretty good activity for the situation we're in now, which is the coronavirus social distancing that's been happening recently. So since we're staying indoors more, it's the perfect activity. I know it's a very serious situation, but social distancing always just makes me laugh. It makes it sound like people are cutting off contact with all their friends and family. (laughs) Funny enough, this is our first remote episode where we're talking from two separate places. (laughs) It's a serious situation we're in, but the term always makes me laugh. Yeah, yeah. The term is the term is funny. I'm like, you can still have contact with people. <laughs> you don't have to not speak to anyone ever again. <laughs> you can still text. Yeah. <laughs> God, it's so silly. I think I'm just looking for comedy in this crazy time. Yeah, it is actually a really crazy time. It's actually pretty scary. Yeah. But yeah. All right, should we jump in, Anna? Yes, but I think first, we can't talk about the Saturn V without first talking about Katherine Johnson. <gasps> yes, yes, this is a very recent news. Yes, so for anybody out there who doesn't know, Katherine Johnson actually did work on the Apollo program. She worked on the Saturn V, and she died last week on February 24th. She died at the age of 101, which is absolutely incredible. So it's a palindrome. 
which means it's the same way forward and backwards. I think she would have liked that. Yeah, <laughs> that's such a good point. She would have. <laughs> um, so Katherine Johnson was a mathematician whose calculations helped, especially with the Apollo program. Yeah, she's a really incredible woman. We highly recommend you look her up if you're interested in her work. She was also, very importantly, she was African-American. Yes. So she was the first African-American woman to be a part of Langley's Space Task Group. Yeah, we should definitely, we should talk about her in a future episode. Yeah, I think we should do an episode about, really, there's groups of women and, and other minorities who really, the Apollo program would not have been possible without them. Right. I think we should do a whole episode on them. Absolutely. If you saw the movie Hidden Figures or if you read the book, Katherine Johnson is a central character in that. Yeah, both the movie and the book are phenomenal. Would highly recommend. Yes, I completely agree. All right. So before we hop into this, want to introduce ourselves? Yeah. So I'm Henna. And I'm Anna. And this is... But But it is is Rocket Science. Science. So for this week, I'm going to do the technological description. So essentially, we're going to start out with what is the Saturn V? So the Saturn V is an American human-rated super heavy lift launch vehicle, and it was used by NASA between 1967 and 1973. This is a member of the Saturn family of vehicles. I'm sure Henna's going to tell us how it got its name. I actually didn't know that before <laughs> doing research for this. I never even wondered why. I was just like, oh yeah, Saturn. Cool. So if the Saturn sounds familiar to you, it's because we talked about it in the Lunar Module episode. We touched upon this for a second in the intro. The Saturn V is what brought the lunar module and the astronauts to the moon. To date, it's the only launch vehicle to carry humans beyond low Earth orbit. But that may change in the not-so-far-away future. But we're going to talk about that in a bit. In our future section. (laughs) Which Henna will grace us with. But until we get there. So as of 2020, the Saturn V remains the tallest, heaviest, and most powerful. So it has the highest total impulse rocket ever to make it to operational status so there have been some other rockets that are either in development or were initially proposed that would have been more powerful but never made it to operational status gotcha so how big was the saturn V? so saturn was big it was 363 feet tall which is about the height of a 36 story building wow so while yeah so while researching this i learned that a story is about 10 feet who knew who knew i actually did not know that I didn't know that either until researching for this episode. So it's a 36-story building, or it's 60 feet taller than the Statue of Liberty. Wow, that's massive. I know. It's huge. It had a 33-foot diameter. I tried to find a comparison to anything else with a 33-foot diameter. I couldn't find anything. (laughs) Just a really big diameter. Fully fueled, it weighed 6.2 million pounds. And according to NASA website, that's 400 elephants. That's incredible. (laughs) Uh, Which made me laugh. I can't even picture that many elephants. Yeah, I just like picture like a bunch of elephants in a pile. It's like, shouldn't a visual be something that you can picture in your mind? Like, I can't picture 400 elephants. Sorry, NASA. Yeah, I was like, what? And this is from the NASA website directly. Oh, God. Their comparison was 400 elephants. So that's what we're using, 400 elephants. An important thing I want to talk about right at the beginning is that the Saturn V actually did have two variants. It had the variant that carried the lunar module, which was three stages. There was also a second variant that launched Skylab. We talked about Skylab, I think, in the space medicine episode for a little bit. We might do an episode just on Skylab in the future. That variant only had two stages. However, throughout this, I'm mainly going to focus on the three-stage variant because that had significantly more launches. The stages are the S1C, the S2, and the S4B. 
let's start things off with the first stage. We'll go in numerical order. As I just said, the first stage was the S1C, which was 138 feet tall, or if we do 10 feet to a story, a 14-story building. This would make it more than a third of the total Saturn V vehicle height. It had a dry mass of about 289,000 pounds, and fully fueled, it weighed just about 5 million pounds. I'm sorry, I didn't do a comparison to how many elephants for you. <laughs> so you're just going to have to do that yourself. It was really Basically, big. it was really, really heavy. Yeah, yes. I guess if we do a third, it would be a third of $400. <laughs> but which, which I'm sure means a lot to all of you. 94% of the total mass was propellant. This will come into play a little bit more when we talk about the second stage. The first stage was powered by five Rocketdyne F1 engines that were positioned in a quincunx. That's Q-U-I-N-C-U-N-X. I had to look up how you pronounce this word. Yeah, that's a funky word. what it meant, because it ends in an X. I was like, how do you say that? <laughs> quincunx. So it's a geometric pattern with five points in a cross. The best way I could think to do this was if you look at a standard set of dice, that would be a quincunx where you have four in a square and then one in the middle. The center engine was fixed, while the outer four could be steered hydraulically. This is commonly referred to as gimbaled thrust, and it's utilized to steal the rocket. This is common among many different rocket designs. The space shuttle also utilized gimbaled thrust. We could easily do an entire episode just about the F1 engine, but here's a really quick overview. Maybe we'll, we will do an entire episode about the F1 engine. If that's something that interests you, let us know. The F1 engine is a gas generator cycle rocket engine. I'm not going to dive into what this means here. We can do an episode on this in the future, or you can Google it yourself. It was developed by Rocketdyne. The F1 is the most powerful single-nozzle liquid-fueled rocket engine ever flown. So it produced about 1.5 million pounds of thrust, or about 7,000 kilonewtons. Interestingly enough, there is an engine that is more powerful than the F1. It's called the RD-170. This is an engine that was developed by the Soviet Union, and while it does technically produce more thrust at 1.6 million pounds of thrust, or 7,200 kilonewtons, it actually has multiple combustion chambers, so it has multiple nozzles which means the F1 is the most powerful single combustion chamber rocket engine. Not the most powerful ever, most powerful single combustion chamber. Right. The F1 utilized RP-1. I didn't know this until I started working on rockets. RP-1 or jet fuel is just rocket grade kerosene. The same stuff in old school oil lamps. I remember learning that in one of my aerospace classes and I was like, what? Yeah, I always thought it was some fancy thing. It's jet fuel. And so rocket grade just means it's cleaner. Like it's cleaner kerosene. Yeah. So it burns cleaner. It's just so pure filtered it more. kerosene. That's all it is. Right. Um, so it utilized RP-1 or jet fuel and liquid oxygen, which is commonly referred to as LOX because it would be L-O-X, liquid oxygen, as the oxidizer. Fuel and oxygen were injected into the combustion chamber using a turbo pump. We can go into that also in another episode specifically. The F1 is a large engine. It's 19 feet tall, or two stories, and 12.3 feet in diameter. There's actually one at the Museum of Flight outside of Seattle. I've been there and I saw it. It's really cool. It's bigger than I could even describe to you. Like, it is as tall as a two-story building. If you ever have the chance to go and look at it, it's really amazing. The entire Museum of Flight is really cool, but the F1 is really neat. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So the five F1 engines produced an accumulated 7,891 million 
pounds of thrust, or about 35,000 kilonewtons. That's insane. During launch, the F-1s were fired for a total of 168 seconds, with the center engine being shut off 26 seconds sooner than the outboard engines to limit acceleration. I actually didn't know that. I thought that was an interesting fact. At engine cutoff, the vehicle was at an altitude of 36 nautical miles, or about 70 kilometers. Interestingly enough, the launch of the Saturn V is one of the loudest sounds ever recorded. Wow. It clocked in at 204 decibels. 90 to 95 decibels is where humans begin to experience hearing loss. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was really loud. They actually have to do a lot of work with acoustics to make sure the sound itself doesn't destroy the rocket. Sound and acoustics are actually a really important field when it comes to rockets, especially rocket launches like this. They are, yeah. Acoustics are an incredibly important field. Not only just like external acoustics, but also internal acoustics, especially like if you're thinking about crew cabins. Noise is actually something that can really disturb the astronauts and mess with their psychology. Acoustics all around, very important topic for aerospace. Agreed. Another important thing I kind of want to touch on is that none of the Saturn V stages were reusable. This made every launch incredibly expensive. And it's also part of the reason why most rocket designs that you see today are pushing towards a reusable design in a way to try to save money. Because when you lose the rocket every single time, it becomes incredibly expensive. Moving on to the S2. This is the second stage of the Saturn V. This was 81.6 feet tall, or again, around eight stories, if you're all doing the math at home. It had the same diameter as the S1C at 33 feet. You can actually see this in pictures if you look at it, like the first and second stages are flush with each other. It had a dry weight of 80,000 pounds and a fueled weight of about a million pounds. I wanted to bring this up because the S2 is considered to have an incredible or an ultra lightweight design. A major component of that decrease the weight of the S2 was a development of a common bulkhead. As we've discussed before, engines need both a fuel and an oxidizer to work. So that means you need two distinct tanks to store them. You can't have them mixed beforehand or else you'll have combustion. Right. <laughs> so to prevent that, you have to store them separately. So these tanks are exactly what you think of when you think of a tank. They're pressurized cylinders. If you have a fire extinguisher, the top of it is rounded. This is a gross simplification, but that rounded top would be called a bulkhead. They have rounded end caps because if you have a pressure vector, I'm going to try my best to explain this to you. I have a link in my sources to this. Please check out the link. That will help you. But they're rounded. Because if you have a pressure vector going normal to the surface, you don't want it to be at 90 degrees. Because 90 degrees is the strongest force you can get. So if the angle between your pressure vector and your surface is less than 90 degrees or more than 90 degrees, you have less force. So you have less pressure on the surface. This allows for the walls to be thinner and it allows for less mass. You could have a flat top on your fire extinguisher, but it would weigh a lot more. Right. Because it would have to support that force. Exactly. That 90 degree pressure vector against the flatter side. Yes. So it has a flat bottom, so you can keep it upright, but you would weigh even more if you also had a flat top. Gotcha. So ideally, it would have two rounded ends, or actually, in a perfectly ideally, it would be a sphere. Because that means there would never be 90 degrees between your pressure vector and the surface. However, it's not always feasible to have spherical tanks, just from a size 
perspective. And from how much fuel you probably need to carry. That's exactly it. So to have a sphere for some of these tanks, it would be a huge sphere. A huge sphere. And you just can't do that. (laughs) That'd be a funny looking rocket. (laughs) It would be. Yes, it'd probably be very aerodynamically inefficient. Yeah. The S1C, we'll post some pictures of this, utilized two entirely different tanks. A tank for fuel or RP1 on the bottom with a rounded end cap. Then there was a little bit of space. And then there was a second tank of liquid oxygen above that. So there were four bulkheads or four end caps. A common bulkhead means that instead of four end caps, you have three. But the bulkhead between your oxidizer and your fuel, or in this case, your hydrogen and your oxygen, is just one. You have one long tank, and then you have one divider between the two of them. This would be called a bulkhead. You essentially have a barrier, it is the separation, between your hydrogen and your oxygen. So for the S2, a common bulkhead was developed that served as the top of the LOX tank and the bottom of the LH2 tank. This doesn't sound that hard in theory. You're like, great, you have a big cylinder and then you put a wall between the two to prevent mixing. Great. What's really tricky about this is that they had design and manufacture a half sphere that was capable of withstanding a half million pounds of thrust during takeoff while also maintaining a thermal barrier between your fuel and your oxidizer. The temperature to store hydrogen and the temperature to store liquid oxygen are two very different temperatures. When it comes to cryogenic fluids, which essentially means oxygen is not normally liquid. Hydrogen is not normally liquid at room temperature. To get them to be liquids, you have to put them under incredibly high pressure and at low temperatures. So you're kind of cheating chemistry. You're not cheating. You're just using chemistry to your advantage. Right. But to do that, the temperatures at which they're stored are very particular. The storage temperature for liquid hydrogen and the storage temperature for liquid oxygen have 126 degrees Fahrenheit of difference between them. Wow. So you probably need like a material that's super good at insulating that won't conduct temperature across it very well. Exactly. You had to have a thermal barrier that was really very thermally isolating. It prevented heat transfer between your fuel and your oxidizer. The way they did this was they did two aluminum sheets with a honeycomb structure sandwich between them made out of resin. You had one aluminum sheet, you had a honeycomb, and then you had the next aluminum sheet. To manufacture this common bulkhead, a bunch of new manufacturing techniques were developed specifically for this. However, one in particular I was reading about involved actually inflating the domes. These tanks are basically just soda cans. They're just like aluminum soda cans, but on an exponential level. Yeah. Giant so, soda cans for all yeah, those soda lovers out they're there. They're actually, the walls of them compared to the size are actually pretty thin. Yeah. Which meant you could inflate them. Not to the extent that you blow into a balloon and inflates, not that much. Uh-huh. But if you pressurized it, you would smooth the surface out. Like if you think about it, if you blow into a beach ball, when it's fully inflated, you have that really smooth surface. They realized that by inflating the dome, that meant when they put the honeycomb structure on top of it, they could get it really flush to the surface. So they did the layup, the process of putting together the aluminum and the honeycomb resin while it was inflated. Yes. Wow. Yeah, because that meant they could get that honeycomb resin really close to the surface of the dome. Gotcha. Yeah. Using a common bulkhead saved about 8,000 pounds. 
I was curious about this. I assumed that it was just because it went from having four bulkheads to three, but mass savings also came from the fact that it reduced the stage's overall length. Oh, that makes sense. Instead of having one whole tank, and then you had to have some air, and then another whole tank, you're right. slamming those two together. So you're actually reducing the length of the overall stage. So you're taking that middle that middle portion of these two stacked tanks, the middle portion that was originally the two bulkheads and that gap of air, and smooshing yes. it together into now this aluminum honeycomb structure divider. Yes, exactly. That would reduce it. I can just imagine it reducing it by a significant amount. Yeah, it's really neat. So hopping back from, we're going to hop back away from the common bulkhead and we're going to talk more about the stage. The S2 used the J2 engine. It was the largest cryogenic stage until the space shuttle in 1981. So it used, utilized another Rocketdyne engine called the J2. Super it had the cool. Same, yeah, I actually have drawings of the J2, not originals, but copies from the internet uh, <laughs> on my wall. She does, and it looks really good. Thanks. I have it next to my cross stitch. Yeah, she has framed blueprints. Yeah, they're really cool. If I can find them, somebody at work with sent them over. If I can find them, I'll link them here. But I don't entirely know if I can find them again. I, hope, I bet I could dig it up. That'd be awesome. So it had the same quincunx configuration as the first stage, with the outer engines being used to steer. So they were also hydraulically gimbaled. The J2 was a liquid-fueled cryogenic rocket engine. A cryogenic rocket engine uses both a cryogenic fuel and an oxidizer. I talked about this earlier. It means that they're both gases that are liquefied and stored at a very cold temperature. The first stage, the F1, is not a cryogenic rocket engine because kerosene or jet fuel is liquid at room temperature. They don't have to do anything special for it to be liquid. Gotcha. Hydrogen is not liquid at room temperature. It's actually a noble gas. <laughs> <laughs> So they have to make it a liquid, which means they have to put it under high pressure and it has to be really cold. Oh, wow. Yes. Hydrogen was utilized as a fuel for the second stage due to its energy density. Liquid hydrogen has a higher energy density by mass than jet fuel or RP-1, making it lighter. You want that on upper stage because it has to be carried off of the ground. You want the second stage to be light because the first stage is pushing it up. If you're giving somebody a piggyback ride, it's easier if they weigh less. <laughs> like, yeah. Or or it's like, imagine throwing a beach ball versus throwing a hundred pound weight. Right. I love that. Gonna, I love those examples. It's going to be a lot easier to throw a beach ball. Yeah. And I think the fueled mass of the second stage was almost a fifth of the the first stage. Yeah. It's significantly lighter. It's like, okay, great. If LH2 has such a high energy density, why didn't you use that on the first stage? Well, RP-1 has a higher energy density by volume than LH-2. So what that means is it takes up less space. The energy density you get from LH-2 and the energy density you get from RP-1, you would need a larger by volume amount of LH-2 than you would RP-1. Okay. Using LH-2 in the first stage or in the F-1 would have resulted in the volume of the tank of the first stage being three times larger. Wow. So in order to get enough LH2 to fuel the first stage of the rocket, you would have needed three times the volume of the tank. That is just huge. That would be so much more mass. It's already 186 feet tall as a stage. It would have been gigantic. Yeah. It also would have had way higher aerodynamic drag. Yeah. I also don't even know if it would have been possible at to that lift time it manufacturing techniques. <laughs> yeah, it would have been yeah, crazy. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. 
So that's just, we're not even going to go there. Oh my goodness. So I have here that the J2 produced 109 pounds of thrust, but I somehow don't think that's right. I don't believe. That seems way too low. I'm it wondering does. if I messed up a decimal point. 232. So the J2 produced 232,250 pounds of thrust. Wow. So actually, if you listen to it's a lot. If you listen to the first episode we ever recorded about the linear aerospike, there was development of an aerospike version of the J2 started. However, when the Saturn V program was canceled, that lost funding. It was a bummer. It was a bummer. It would have been cool. Yeah. That's okay. So here, I'm very quickly going to discuss that Skylab variant of the Saturn V we talked about earlier. So Skylab replaced this third stage and went on to serve as the top of the S2. Modifications were made to the S2 to serve as the terminal stage for delivering Skylab into low Earth orbit. It was altered such that it would vent excess propellant after the engine cutoff so that the finished stage would not explode in orbit. I don't believe any changes were made to the S1C. Minor changes were made to the second stage. I couldn't find any changes being made to the first stage. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. We are in the home stretch. Time for the final stage. Yay. The S4B. The S4B was 58.6 feet tall, or six stories, if you're sticking with me, and 21.7 feet in diameter. It was actually just about, what would have that been, 12 feet in diameter smaller than the first and second stages, and it had a dry mass of 23,000 pounds and a fully fueled mass of 262,000 pounds. It was aggressive in terms of mass, but not quite to the same extent as the S2 was. The S4B also used a common bulkhead similar to that of the S2 that we just did in a whole bunch of detail. So the S4B used a single J2 engine, same engine we just talked about on the S2, and it ran on LOX and LH2. As an interesting fact, the Saturn 1B, which is an entirely different rocket in the Saturn family, used the S4B as its second stage. The second stage of the Saturn 1B is the third stage of the Saturn 5. The only difference between the S4B used on the Saturn 1B and the one used on the Saturn 5 is that the J2 on the Saturn 5 could be restarted. This is necessary for something called TLI or translunar injection. The actual definition quoted of this is that it's a propulsive maneuver used to set a spacecraft on a trajectory that will cause it to arrive at the moon. That's a quote from Wikipedia. Nice. So you have to be able to restart it to get to the moon. The S-1B never went to the moon, so that engine didn't have to restart. Sweet. Cool stuff. All right, we're almost there. On top of the third stage was the instrument unit. This was a computer built by IBM that controlled the operations of the rocket from liftoff to end of life of the third stage. This included all the fun stuff like guidance and telemetry systems. This was used to calculate vehicle position and velocity using acceleration and altitude data it collected. This essentially allowed for it to correct for any deviations from trajectory, so it would keep it on path. Another important aspect of the Saturn V was something called the range safety system. Every rocket actually has this. I think it's required to have this, possibly by the FAA. In the event of an in-flight abort that required the destruction of the rocket, so if something went really wrong and the rocket had to be destroyed, you have to do this to make sure that it doesn't fall back onto the Earth. You want to prevent it falling down in the Earth or crashing into the ocean. Somebody called a range safety officer. I think this is a person. 
I don't know why that's funny to me. I think I'm just thinking of like when you're like a kid and somebody was elected the safety officer. <laughs> but this is a real job. Yeah, it is. This it's is actually a very job. serious job. It is a very serious job. But somebody called a range safety officer would remotely shut down the engines. They would then be a pause for several seconds in which the crew would escape using either the launch escape tower or the service module, depending on what stage of flight they were in. We talked more about what the lunar escape tower and the service module were in our episode dedicated in the Apollo lunar module episode, so please check that out if you're curious about more about that. Essentially, safety officer would shut the engines down, the crew would get out of there. After the crew was safe, a command would be sent, I'm thinking by the range safety officer, which would detonate explosive shape charges on the outer surface of the rocket. This is really cool. What this does is it made cuts in the fuel and oxidizer tanks to quickly drain them and minimize mixing. Oh, wow. Because this is when it becomes really explosive. Yeah. So you want to slash those tanks open and have all that propellant burn out of it because you don't want that crash into the ground. You do not want a fully fueled tank crashing down or exploding and yeah. just throwing shrapnel everywhere. That's incredibly dangerous. So it's you super slice. scary. It is really scary. So you actually, you purposely destroy the tanks you drain the propellant and the oxidizer. Whatever it is up there will burn out if it burns up in the atmosphere or whatever falls down will not be compressed or under pressure or combustible. So that's yeah. really important. It's sad that you have to self-destroy all this hard work that was put into engineering, but it has to be done. And I think that the engineering surrounding just the range safety system is so cool. Yeah, and it needs to be safe. So actually, interestingly enough, you can see videos of this online. Not of the Saturn V, but of other rockets doing it. Other rockets of testing them. Systems. Yes. Yeah. So SpaceX recently conducted an in-flight abort test yeah. of the Crew Dragon on January 19th. They utilize a system, again, in which the propellant is drained from the tank. It's a really cool video. We'll link it in the sources. So they're testing their abort system. Interestingly enough, there was actually a third command. There is a third safety command that is triggered after the S-4B that would irreversibly deactivate the self-destruct system. So once the S-4B was safely in orbit and had done its job, there was a safety command that would be triggered that would deactivate the self-destruct system, essentially so it wouldn't be triggered in orbit by accident. Gotcha. And that's it. Awesome. Anna, that was incredible. That was super detailed and super awesome to learn about. It was really long. I think I need a break. Yeah, let's take a break. We'll be back soon. And we're back from our break, everyone. So I bought these chips from Trader Joe's. Organic white truffle potato chips with Italian white truffles in fleur de sel sea salt. Fancy. They are so good (laughs) they are i was at anna's place last week and she opened up this bag of chips and when i ate one i was just so amazed they're like this amazing luxurious experience and i was shocked to hear that they were from trader joe's yeah and they're like two dollars so delicious they're so good would recommend yeah 100 percent. so that's what i did during the break (laughs) she snacked on some chips (laughs) yep i have some white wine Really living it up here. All right, Hannah, I'm really excited to learn all about the history of this thing. Yeah, I'm excited to share it with you. So let's go ahead and dive in. Let's do it. The rocket's engineering efforts were led by Werner von Braun. And for those of you who don't know, he's quite an important figure in rocketry. 
He's a German-born engineer. The U.S. government hired him and a team of 700 other German engineers and technicians to design the Saturn V, and this was all part of Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip was the stealth program that was organized by the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, J-I-O-A, and there's actually a really good book written by Annie Jacobson about it. It's titled Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program to bring Nazi scientists to America. According to the U.S. CIA website, so I was just perusing um, the internet trying to understand more (laughs) about Operation Paperclip, and the CIA website says that, quote, it provides perhaps the most comprehensive, up-to-date narrative available to the general public. Her book is a detailed and highly readable account of the program. From the title, you can gather that Werner von Braun and the rest of the engineers were part of the Nazi party. Yeah, actually, interestingly enough, uh, there's a TV show on HBO right now called Hunters, which is actually kind of based around this whole idea. It's based around essentially that it is true, that is entirely true, that they brought German engineers who were Nazis. Mm-hmm. It's really hard as an aerospace engineer to talk about all of his great contributions to rocketry, but at the same time knowing he wasn't a good person. Yes, he was awful. Yeah. Things that they did were truly terrible. Truly, truly awful. This TV show, Hunters, goes on this idea. Uh, This is not a TV show for kids. Please. It is a really good TV show. If you are old enough, go ahead and watch it. It it has adult content in it. That's really interesting, though. It's actually kind of based around this idea. And it actually talks about Operation Paperclip. And when I was watching it, I assumed that they made that part up. But they did not. That is real. The show itself is fictitious. But it's a fictitious projection based on real events. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a really interesting TV show. I recommend you check it out if you are an adult. Awesome, Anna. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Part of the operation, like I mentioned, was to bring all these German scientists and engineers from Germany to the U.S. And this was done in an effort to use their rocketry knowledge to provide the U.S. with an advantage during the Cold War. The Cold War happened after World War II, and it lasted from about 1947 to 1991. It was a time of conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States and their respective allies. The Soviet Union also put up a fight, except they did it a lot more aggressively. The Soviet Union removed 2,200 German engineers from a Soviet occupation zone of Germany by holding them at gunpoint and demanding they offer their engineering expertise to the Soviet Union. And all of this happened on one night, October 22nd, 1946. So that is incredibly just like thinking about it, so scary. They basically kidnapped all these German engineers from the Soviet occupation zone, 2,200 of them. And yeah, that happened all in one night, one night. Part of the reason why the U.S. and the Soviet Union, they were essentially competing because they didn't want the other person to have that intelligence. Does that make sense? That's why they were essentially kidnapping these scientists, because if the Soviet Union took them, then they couldn't go to the U.S. Exactly. So the Saturn V was developed at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Von Braun was placed in the rocket design division of the Army because of his experience with the V-2 rocket. The V-2 rocket was developed and used by the Germans during World War II, and it was the world's first large-scale liquid-propellant rocket vehicle. And it was the world's first long-range ballistic missile. 
Between 1945 and 1958, he mostly just shared his V2 research with other U.S. engineers. But then, in 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1 atop a R-7 ICBM, which stands for Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. The R-7 was capable of carrying a thermonuclear warhead to the U.S., and that was really scary. And this motivated the government, the U.S. government, to make progress in taking Americans to space. They asked Von Braun and his team to focus on this new effort of getting Americans ahead in the space race. From then on, Von Braun and his team of engineers worked on the Jupiter series of rockets. Jupiter was designed as an intermediate-range ballistic missile. It was about 2.67 meters in diameter, and it was powered by a single LR-79 rocket motor. It was a nuclear-armed missile that was deployed in Turkey and Italy during the early 1960s. The Jupiter became the first stage for the Juno-2 satellite launcher, and the Jupiter rocket was eventually called an infant Saturn. Cool. Yeah. So now Anna brought up earlier that I was going to explain how Saturn got its name. Well, if you think about it, the Saturn program got its name because Saturn is the next planet after Jupiter. And the Jupiter rocket was the predecessor to the Saturn. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty nifty because like Anna said earlier, I also thought that the Saturn rocket was just arbitrarily named the Saturn. They're like, Saturn's a planet. Cool. It's space. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't actually know that. Yeah. So then from 1960 to 1962, the Marshall Space Flight Center designed a series of Saturn rockets that were capable of different types of Earth orbit or lunar missions. First, it started as the C-1, which evolved into the Saturn 1. And the C-1 was just, it was just a name for a rocket. And then there was the C-2 rocket, which was dropped early in the design process because the C-3 was preferred over it. And NASA planned to use the C-3 as part of an Earth orbit rendezvous concept, with at least four or five launches needed for a single lunar mission. And then after the C-3, there was the C-4, which would use four F-1 engines on its first stage, a larger C-3 second stage, and the S-4B, the stage with a single J-2 engine, as its third stage. And then eventually we get on January 10th, 1962, NASA announced its plans to build the C-5, which eventually became known as the Saturn V. And as Anna mentioned, it was a three-stage rocket. So the C-5 was engineered to carry a 90,000-pound or 41,000-kilogram payload capacity to the moon. What was a little crazy was that rather than testing each major component separately, the C-5 was tested in an all-up fashion, which meant that the first test flight on the rocket would include complete versions of all three stages. Testing, Whoa. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's crazy. It's crazy. Just to think about how in aerospace engineering, we test so many components separately. The idea of testing an all-up version of a rocket is frightening. The benefit of testing all the components at once meant that we would need less flights to the eventual goal of a crewed flight. Makes sense. So then NASA chose the C-5 for the Apollo program in 1963, and then it was eventually called the Saturn V. The engineering of the stages was done by Von Braun and his team, but outside contractors were chosen for the construction. Boeing was used for the S-1C, North American Aviation was used for S-2, 
Douglas Aircraft was used for S4B, and as Anna mentioned earlier, IBM designed the instrument unit, which was that ring-shaped structure that contained the guidance and navigation system. So essentially, they outsourced their construction of the stages. Exactly. NASA did not build them, they designed them. Right. Cool. After that, what gets interesting, there was a bit of drama that arose over the configuration that would be used to get us to the moon successfully. NASA was considering three options for the moon mission, and these were the Earth orbit rendezvous, a direct ascent, or a lunar orbit rendezvous. And we actually go quite a bit into this in our lunar module episode. But real quick, a direct ascent mission involves landing a spacecraft on the moon directly without assembling the vehicle in Earth orbit. So this meant that we would need a huge rocket to send a three-man spacecraft to land on the moon. The Earth Orbit Rendezvous would launch the direct landing spacecraft in two smaller parts, which would combine in Earth orbit. And then the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, LOR mission, would involve a single rocket launching two spacecraft, a mothership and a smaller two-man landing module, which would rendezvous back with the main spacecraft in lunar orbit. The lander would be discarded, and then the mothership would return home. At that point in history, a space rendezvous had never been performed in Earth orbit. Just to take it a step back, I've been saying the word rendezvous a lot. Space rendezvous is just when two spacecraft meet in the same orbit and get very close to each other. So this has been done many, many, many times now. But for example, we'll dock spacecraft to the International Space Station for resupply to provide supplies for the astronauts living up there. But yeah, at that point, a space rendezvous had never been done before. NASA had labeled the lunar orbit rendezvous configuration a riskier one. Several NASA officials had defended the LOR configuration, the LOR configuration, with the justification that it provided the simplest landing on the moon with the most cost-efficient launch vehicle. And shout out to Katherine Johnson again for all of her calculations for the rendezvous paths for the lunar and command modules of the Apollo program. Yay. Yay. So eventually, the rest of the team at NASA was on board, and the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous was selected as the mission configuration for the Apollo program on November 7th, 1962. I just have to think about the arguments that these engineers put up to defend the riskier of the two options. Like, they had to have been really solid arguments. And just to think of all the rendezvous we have done since then, it's pretty incredible. Going back to the history, Arthur Rudolph became the project director of the Saturn V rocket program in August 1963, and he was the one who developed the requirements for the rocket system and the mission plan for the Apollo program. The first Saturn V launch lifted off from Kennedy Space Center and performed flawlessly on November 9, 1967. And then, of course, we brought astronauts to the moon in 1969. Yeah. That was an awesome history, Hannah. Thanks, Anna. Do you want to go ahead and tell us about how we see the Saturn V today? Like what is up with the Saturn V program in the present? Yeah, but why don't we take a little break first? That sounds good. All right, we're back from our break. Yeah. Yeah, it was a... <laughs> we actually took a break for a few days, which is why I'm laughing. <laughs> I figured we wanted that after our music, or hopefully one day an ad. Yeah, that would be awesome. If you want to sponsor us, <laughs> please. <laughs> we have nothing else to do but work on this podcast. 
<laughs> actually, though, right now, because we're quarantined. It's actually really nice to have another project besides just work. Yes, absolutely. It's really nice to either be working on research or just be thinking about it in a creative way. Have um, another productive thing to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my favorite things about us doing this podcast, Anna, is that we're like constantly growing and learning from it. Yeah, I've learned so much. Yeah. Actually, from this episode alone. Yeah, actually. Same. That was really useful at work, too. I was able to pull out some solid facts. Everyone was impressed by your knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they knew it. And so I think they were impressed that I also knew it. And I was like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Heck yeah. I've known that. I didn't just figure that out (laughs) last week. I love it. I love that. All right, you ready to dive in about the present state of the Saturn V? Yes, please, Anna, please share your knowledge about the present state of the Saturn V. Unfortunately, as we mentioned before, the Saturn V does not fly anymore. The last flight of the Saturn V was the Skylab launch in 1973. Many consider something called the Space Launch System, also known as SLS, as NASA's modern-day Saturn V, but Hannah will dive more into that. Yeah. What's really cool, though, is if you want to see a Saturn V, you can. There is one on vertical display in Huntsville at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. These are all test stages that were not meant for flight. There's another one at the Johnson Space Center. This is the only Saturn V display consisting entirely of stages that were intended to be launched. Oh. What test stages means is that they built them to then test. Kind of what Hannah spoke about earlier. But they were never intended to fly. So these test stages are now on display. But the Johnson Space Center, they have a flight model. All three stages are flight versions that were intended to be flown, but the program was canceled before they were ever used. So both of the centers, Johnson Space Center and the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, they both are carrying test stages? So the U.S. Space and Rocket Center has all test stages. The Johnson Space Center is the only one that is entirely flight stages. Oh, cool. Very cool. That's awesome. Yes. The other places have a mix. Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. I've actually been here. It's really cool. Me too. (laughs) It's really neat. Yeah. The first stage is a test stage, but the other two, the S2 and the S4B are flight stages. It's a really cool museum. What's also really neat is they have it displayed horizontally, and then they have separation between all three stages, so you can actually like see into the S2 and see the engines and all that stuff. It's really neat. I have a picture of me there. I'll post it on our Instagram. Oh, that's so awesome. Is that the trip that you took pretty recently? Yeah, back in November. Gotcha. Oh, that's awesome. I did see that picture. That is a beautiful picture. It's really cool. And I was coincidentally, I wore my, I have like a red, white, and blue jacket that is not supposed to be anything patriotic. But <laughs> it's just a, the, like a cool jacket. It is a cool jacket. I've seen it. <laughs> But I coincidentally wore it on the day we went to the Kennedy Space Center without thinking about it. So I've got like my America jacket on in front of the S2, which is my favorite stage. Oh, that's awesome. It's really neat. And then there's also an S1C on display at the Infinity Science Center in Mississippi. And then there's an S4B. So there's an S4B that was converted as a backup Skylab that's on display at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., Oh, that's so interesting that the S4B was converted as a backup Skylab. Yes. I actually think they made two. They made two Skylabs. They made the original that launched, and then they made a backup. Both of them, I believe, are converted S4Bs. That's really, really cool. 
Yeah, it's really neat. And so I actually went to the Air and Space Museum when I was a kid, but I don't remember seeing that. But I was also pretty young. I meant to ask my dad, who also loves space too, if we saw it. If we were there, we must have. I must just not have really understood what it was. I was pretty young, so I'm bummed out because I was like, I've been there and I don't remember seeing that. (laughs) That would have been really cool. Oh my gosh, I totally think about that. Um, in regards to trips to museums as a child, it's like now I have such a better appreciation for them. Oh, completely. Oh, completely. And then I have a wonderful father. I really do. But he has to read every single sign in a museum and go to every single display. And so as a kid, I was like, this is the worst. And I like didn't appreciate it. And as an adult, I'm like, darn, I wish I had paid some more attention to that stuff rather than just getting annoyed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize there were quite so many on display. I also didn't realize that there were any that were vertical. I bet that's really cool to see just how tall it was. Oh, yeah. All right. Do you want to talk to us? Totally. A little bit about the future? Yes, I'd love to. But before I start chatting about the future, I just wanted to make a point for those of you who are not familiar with Skylab. We mentioned it in one of our earlier episodes, but it was the only space station that was operated only by the United States. As of 2019, and it was really cool because it included a solar observatory and like so many life science and physical science experiments. So that's why it's like a really neat thing, and I get really excited about it. But I think we should do an episode about it in the future. It's so I think fun. we should do an episode about all three of the space stations, so we can do Skylab, the ISS, and then Mir. I love it. Yes, totally. And then do the Chinese also have one? I think it I recently like deorbited. Oh no way. Yeah. Anyway, we'll look that up. We could do an episode about all yeah. of the space stations. I love it. So shall we dive into the future, Anna? Let me have it. I'm excited to hear where we're going. <laughs> Yay. Okay. Orbital launch vehicles that can carry twenty thousand to fifty thousand kilograms, or about forty-four thousand to one hundred and ten thousand pounds into Leo are called heavy lift launch vehicles. As of 2019, the vehicles that have proven their heavy lift launch capabilities, that is being able to carry at least 44,000 pounds into LEO, are the Ariane 5, the Proton-M, and the Delta IV Heavy. And the vehicles I'm going to list, some of them have launched, but they have not proven their heavy lift launch capabilities of carrying at least 44,000 pounds, but they are planned to. Their engineering teams are working towards these vehicles carrying at least 44,000 pounds into LEO. And these vehicles are Angara A5, Vulcan, the Falcon 9 Full Thrust, the Falcon Heavy, New Glenn, and the Long March 5, and the Ariane 6. I'm just going to give a shout out to where these vehicles are from because I think it's really interesting to have a perspective of all the countries and teams that are working on these vehicles. Yeah, there's a lot more than just the US. Yes, exactly. Angara A5 is a Moscow-based spaceflight group. The Vulcan is being designed by the United Launch Alliance in the U.S. Falcon 9 Full Thrust and the Falcon Heavy are being designed by SpaceX. New Glenn is being designed by Blue Origin in the U.S. Long March 5 is being designed in China by the China Academy of Launch Vehicle Technology, which I thought was really cool. I'd never heard of the China Academy of Launch Vehicle Technology. I haven't either. Yeah. Ariane 6 is being designed by the European Space Agency, ESA. Yeah, I just think it's really cool that all these different groups around the world are working on heavy lift launch vehicles. Yeah, they're not small feats. Right. 
As Anna mentioned in the present section, the Space Launch System, SLS is being engineered by NASA and it's really cool. It's a super heavy lift expendable launch vehicle and it has been worked on since 2011. A super heavy lift, so it's not just a heavy lift, it's a super heavy lift. And that means that it can carry more than 50 tons or 110,000 pounds. That's amazing. It's amazing to think about. That's crazy. Yeah, (laughs) super crazy. And I also use the words expendable launch system. Expendable launch system means that it can be launched only once. And after launch, its components are either destroyed during re-entry or discarded in space. Aww. Yeah, it's actually really sad. It's like you engineer this giant magical vehicle and it's going to carry so much into space and the hours and the effort that goes into it and then the components are burned during re-entry. That's another episode we could do. Cases for and against rocket reusability. I love that. We should totally do an episode on that. I would love to. Yeah, I think that would be a cool one. Yeah, I think that'd be really cool. And it'd be really interesting just personally to do the research. Yeah, I was actually like, besides (laughs) uh, essentially like one of the major ones for reusability is cost. But one of the major problems is that it causes them to weigh more. Because you need to have like just, I don't know, real high level here. You need to have a landing system. So that weighs more. But yeah, absolutely. It's like the costs add up for the weight, but then the reusability also, there's just a lot more engineering that goes into it, a lot more time and effort. Yes, exactly. Um, But you can save a significant amount of money if you can reuse stages. Oh, 100%. Man, that's really interesting. I would really like to dig into that more. Yeah, we should. So the SLS is going to be NASA's primary deep space exploration vehicle. It's planned to be used for crewed lunar flights of the Artemis program and possible human missions to Mars, which I think is super awesome. (laughs) That's insane to think about. But yeah, that's all I have for the future section. There's a lot of really cool work being done out there all over the world. And I'm sure there's even more projects up and coming that we haven't heard about. Yeah, of course. That's awesome. I think that's all we have for today. Anna, do you want to go into your sources? Yes. All right. So for my sources, I used a lot of the NASA website. There's a whole lot on the NASA website about Saturn V, which is really cool. Um, I used Wikipedia. I always kind of start with Wikipedia. Yeah, me too. I used a website called space.com. Yes. For some cool infographic about the different stages and stuff. I used a website called Seeker.com to figure out, because I was trying to Google how loud rocket launches are, because I had heard somewhere that the Saturn V was one of the loudest events ever recorded. Yeah, that's interesting. But I didn't know if that was true or not. I used a website called HeroAcrylics.org for information about how they manufactured the common bulkhead on the S2 and the S4B. Some more Wikipedia about translunar injection. A YouTube video about, I don't know what this YouTube video is about. Hold on, I'm going to click on it. Oh, it's the YouTube video of the SpaceX in-flight abort test. We'll link that just because it's cool. All right, Hannah, what do you got? I also used a few Wikipedia pages as a launch pad. Wikipedia pages for the Saturn V, Operation Paperclip. I also used website historicspacecraft.com to learn more about the Jupiter rockets. Also used space.com, like Anna. For the Saturn V. <laughs> it's a cool website. It is. I use it all the time. Me too. I used a history page off of Boeing's website about the Saturn V. 
Earlier in the episode, I mentioned a book that was published about Operation Paperclip and how I learned about that book on the CIA website. I have that in my sources. There's also another book I found, Stages to Saturn, A Technological History of the Apollo-Saturn Launch Vehicle. I'll have that linked in the sources as well. And then, of course, the book Hidden Figures that we talked about, and I'll have that as well in our sources. Awesome. I actually own that book. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Would recommend for those of you who don't have it. (laughs) 100%. All right, Hannah, I always do it. So do you want to close this out with how people can contact us? All right, I'll try my best. So you can reach us if you go to our website at www.butitisrocketscience.com. Please reach us. Contact us. If you have episode ideas, if we said anything wrong and you disagree, shoot us a message. Yes, please do. The contact us page is there for a reason. So please use it. You can also find us on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is butitisrocketscience.com. We have a Facebook page, but it is Rocket Science. Please like, give a thumbs up to our posts. We would love it. Comment on our episodes. You can also find us on Twitter at but it is RS. If you're enjoying this content, please write us a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It would really help mean a lot to us. It will help us get a little bit more visibility because we love talking about space to all of you. Yes, please do. We'd love that. On that note, shall we close out? All right. Until next time, space cadets. T minus three, two, one, lift off. Lift off. <laughs>